This is Customer Experience Leaders, a podcast produced by Rated. It's a show where we reveal the secrets of how great brands delight their customers. We send a very direct message to people in our organization. Basically, the further you get away from the customer, the better you are. We take our most precious resource, our customer, and we hand it over to the least skilled, the least trained, the least invested in, and the least valued members of our organization. And then we wonder why things consistently go wrong. That's the voice of James Dodkins, the customer experience rock star. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. Hey there, I'm Michael Momsen. So, Michael, this is part two of our interview with... Real life rock star, James Dodkins. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Apologies again, I couldn't make this one, but uh, I'll be joining you at the end. Absolutely. If you missed part one, I strongly recommend that you head back to the last episode and catch our first part of the discussion with James. You don't want to miss that. What's important to note is, yes, James is a real life rock star. He played guitar in a heavy metal band. And because he's a rock star, this episode is all about breaking the rules and how that actually helps brands to build better experiences. Yeah, there's lots of good stuff in here. How to think about complaints with your customers, how to think about getting the right measures and metrics in place for the team and the use of storytelling. So, James has some controversial approaches to customer experience that we wanted to discuss with him. And we started this discussion by asking him about the first of those strange approaches. Why should you put your customers second? I don't know for certain that it is the right thing for every company. All I know is that there is some compelling arguments to make me think that it could be. And I didn't used to think like this. My entire career was customer first, customer first, customer first, until there was a quote from Richard Branson saying, put your employees first, your customers second, and your shareholders third. And I heard it a bunch of times, and then I just must have heard it one too many times. And it made me sit up and go, shit, what? Hang on a second. Does he actually? I, I kind of thought it was a bit of a platitude that was being said just because it sounds good. And I was like, I'm going to look into this a little bit more. And I started doing research into companies that deliver outstanding customer experience by putting their customers second. And really the theory behind it is, is that if the leadership put the employees first, in return, the employees will put the customers first. So if the leaders look after the employees, the employees will look after the customers, and then the customers will look after the revenue. You can't make a happy customer with unhappy employees. It, or, not can't, but it is bloody fucking difficult to do. So you've got a bunch of miserable bastards in your workplace who hate being there, who are just watching the clock, waiting to go home. Right? They're not going to deliver as good an experience as if they're loving life, they're really enjoying being at work, they feel like they're part of something, they feel like they're a main character in the story, they feel like they're actually changing people's lives. If you compare the two, you would take the engaged employees any day And it's the point of putting them first. It's empowering them. It's allowing them to make decisions in line with your values, your vision, your mission. It's allowing them to feel that they're part of something bigger. It's allowing them to see that there is a bigger picture. It's not about the tasks and activities they're doing on an everyday basis. It's about the contribution towards a bigger outcome for your customers and in the world. And it's it's those sorts of things. And it's the focus on that that really does create these workplaces that have almost like cult-like followings. For example... People listening to this, if you think of a particularly crappy company that you do not like, it's very unlikely people are going to be sitting there growing up dreaming of working for this crappy company. But then you've got the people like Apple, Google, Facebook, all those kinds of companies that people dream of working for because they know what a cool culture they've got and they know that they're going to be part of a bigger thing. They're going to be part of a family and they're going to really be able to change the world. 
I completely agree with you, James. And the the interesting thing that's come up a few times on this show is great service and great experiences are usually nine times out of 10 delivered by people. You know, it's very rare that we get a great experience that's delivered by technology. And so, it's the human connection, it's the smile, it's the handshake, it's the person walking around the counter to give you your bag, it's the extra, you know, smiley face on your receipt or whatever it is, right? Just the the little human touches that make the difference. And so, when you're talking about putting your employees first before customers, I think in a weird way, you're still putting your customers pretty high on the hierarchy, but you're just setting up the priorities in a way that allows your team broadly to be able to deliver great service to your customers. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And it is, it's like, it's a weird paradox that in order to put your customers first, you may just have to put your employees first, first. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, that's the, that's the, the sort of the, the trickle down effect of it. Because at the end of the day, if you had no customers, your employees would not have any work and then they'd have to be homeless, I imagine, or just get another job, I guess. <laughs> but the point of it is that for some companies, the way that they deliver such outstanding customer experience is by putting their employees first. And it's not by accident, it's by design. It's with the understanding that to put their customers first, they have to put their employees first first. The next one that I know you have some polarizing views on is complaint handling. Why should complaint handling be a thing of the past? Let me tell you a story of one time that I really fucked up. Okay. So this was our first big uk headline tour as a band and i really wanted to step up my, my stage game okay i wanted my stage performance to be a little bit more exhilarating than it otherwise would have been so i don't know if you've seen this before but have you ever seen the guitar players who like spin the guitar around their neck and like it comes round to the the it, like spins round and i've never seen that but i'm gonna go have a look on youtube uh, after sick. this google it man it's sick um so i thought i'm gonna do that I'm going to learn how to do that. I can do that. So the whole month before, out in my garden on the grass. So in case I dropped my guitar, I didn't, I didn't break it. Practicing spin. And the secret to it is if anybody's out there and wants to know what the secret to this is, you have to just throw it really hard to make it spin all the way around. All right, that's, that's, that's the secret to it. Just throw it really hard. You're nervous to do it to start with because you think, oh, no, but you got a strap on. It just spins around you. It's fine. you got to commit. Yeah. And it, I thought, right, I've got it now. Where am I going to do it in the set? And the last song we played was our most popular song. And there's a little sort of breakdown bit before the final big old bit that everybody really loves. And I thought, you know what? I'll do it just as we go into that. So I can be like, boom. Um, that was the exact noise I made. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, right, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So tour went along. First date, did it. Perfect. Second date, did it. Perfect. Perfect, 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 perfect. All the way up until the last show, which happened to be our biggest show because it was our hometown show. Everything's going well. Everything's going well. And I'm ready. And I'm there. It's coming up. I'm like, this is going great. This is going to be wicked. And I go, oh, shit. What had happened is I'd done it so much that I'd worn out the leather on my strap. And instead of spinning my guitar around, all I did was just throw it really hard into a wall. So I had a decision to make. And that decision was either go, ah, no, my guitar, or do something else. I chose to do something else. So what I did within a split second is ran forward and swan dived like a swan into the crowd, got crowd surfed, ended up in the mosh pit, and the crowd went mental, and they loved it. 
And to this day, people still tell me that that was their favorite gig of ours they ever went to. Because as far as they were concerned, it was just the end of the tour. And I just threw my guitar into a wall like a complete rock star, dived into the crowd like a complete <laughs> rock star. When what really happened is I accidentally wanged my guitar into a wall, dented it up real good, and then didn't know what to do, so dived into the crowd. Now, there's a, there's a reason for that story. As companies, when things go wrong, there are four main ways in which they put them right or can put them right theoretically. And the way I will describe them is with an analogy. And the analogy is it involves alcohol. So you'll spot a trend at some point with this. <laughs> right. So imagine there's a dude in the bar who's carrying four pints and he walks past you and you bump into him and spill one of the drinks. There's four ways in which you can go about acting after this has happened. So number one, which is what most companies do, is you go, didn't see that, no, 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 run off, okay, walk away. Pretend it didn't happen, yep. Yeah, pretend it didn't happen. Hope he doesn't come after you. And you'll be there going, ha I got away with it, yes. Problem is, that guy is now telling the rest of the bar what a prick you are, all right? That's number one. That's what companies do all the time. They pretend something didn't happen. Nobody complained. So it's fine. Everything's fine. Number two is the guy will come after you. He'll tap you on the shoulder and say, dude, you just spilt my drink. And then you go, oh, oh, sorry, I didn't even even notice. uh, let, Let me replace that for you. Sure. Please don't punch me in the face. Right. So you replace the drink, but he still thinks you're a prick because he had to come after you to get you to do that. Companies do that all the time. People make complaints and they go, oh, uh, yeah, sure, I'll put it right. But they still think you're a prick. The third way is they come after you, they tap you on the shoulder and you break out the rule book and you go, uh, actually, um, you accepted the terms and conditions of possible beer spillage when you entered an establishment with a capacity over 300 people on a Thursday evening. Um, for you to carry an unregulated amount of alcohol, four pints, which is above the recommended carry standard, through a crowded bar, you should have realised that there was a possibility. Right, and now he really thinks you're a prick. <laughs> which companies <laughs> do all the time. You'll yeah. bring in your complaint and they'll break out the rule book and tell you why it's your fault that they fucked up. And then there's number four. Now, this is the way that most of us would deal with it, but companies never deal with it. You turn around immediately and you say, shit, I'm sorry, mate, let me buy you a new one. Companies never do that. Companies always wait for the complaint. And if it doesn't come, they think they got away with it. If it does come, they'll deal with it then. I feel that companies should be taking that fourth way. And there's a four-step method in which you can go about doing this straight away. That's a really nice example to illustrate the way that I think most businesses deal with problems. And I think the interesting thing to note is the company thinks they get away with it in a number of those situations, but really they never get away with it. And in fact, by not doing option four, you're actually hurting the relationship more than just saying, hey man, sorry, let me sort this out for you. But nobody ever knows about it because it never hits any voice of customer data and never hits any internal system. And a lost customer never shows up on your balance sheet unless, you know, they're paying some sort of a subscription fee and they actually churn. But, you know, if you're a retail store, someone stops coming. You never know that they stop coming. Well, that, that's exactly it. It's the knock-on effect of him telling the rest of the bar what a prick you are as well. Complaint handling is reactive by nature. You have to sit there, wait for somebody to complain and then do something about it. It's reactive. I think that we should be being more proactive about it. So the turning around immediately and saying, sorry, mate, I spilled your drink. Let me replace it for you. So the four steps are identify, monitor, communicate, compensate. 
and I'll explain each one in turn. So identify. You've got to look at your customer experience. Now, this does not work if your customer experience is shitty already. If you've got a shitty customer experience, fix your shitty customer experience. This is for things that can and will go wrong that are sometimes out of your control. Okay, so look through your experience and identify the things that piss off your customers. You've probably got complaints data already. You can probably look at it and say, what is causing most complaints? It doesn't always have to be something big enough to cause a complaint, though. It could be something else, just things that you know upset your customers. Now, once you understand that, right, you monitor the experience in the experience to see when these things happen. It's not good enough just sending a survey afterwards to see what they thought. You're actually going to be monitoring the experience in the experience. So if things do go wrong, you can put them right, not just wait for somebody to then tell you it went wrong and then put it right. As soon as you notice something has gone wrong, you communicate to the customer that you know it's gone wrong, and then you compensate in some way. Now, this doesn't have to necessarily be a monetary compensation. It can be just making the thing right. So for example, we're doing an airline thing. So one of the things that pisses off customers most is when the plane lands late. So if I land late, I should not be getting a text saying, hey, James, I mean, hey, valued customer, because they never know your name. Hey, on a scale of one to 10, would you recommend it? Whatever. I should be getting a text saying, shit, plane landed late. Really sorry. We know that sucks. Look, here's 10% off your next flight with us. I then go, oh, that's cool of them to do that. I wasn't expecting that at all. That's neat that they've done that. Next thing is, it makes it more likely I'm going to fly with them again because I've got 10% off the next time, which then they can deliver the experience in the way that they would like to. So it gives you a second chance almost. But it doesn't even need to be like a technological way of doing this. You could just have an air hostess as you're walking out, just handing out little drinks vouchers or something. You can just put it right in whatever way possible. Okay, so it's identify the things in the experience that piss off your customers, monitor the experience in the experience for when they happen. When they do, communicate to the customer that you know something has gone wrong and how and when you're going to be putting it right. So compensate, put it right. That is what I think companies should be doing when it comes to complaints. Not waiting for the complaint, but not even giving the customer chance to complain. Fix the experience in the experience. I love that. I think point two, which is monitor, is actually one that to get that point right, you really have to hire staff that give a shit. The plane landing late is a good example of you could set up an automated system which logs scheduled plane time, triggers a thing, and then we do this, right? But there's plenty of things that can go wrong. You know, your meal was cold or your seat didn't go back or your entertainment system didn't work or whatever. But you need to have staff, again, that give a shit, that have a service mindset so they can actually take some initiative and they also need to be empowered to do the, you know, steps three and four to actually compensate and do something about it. Well, exactly. And that is where this story comes full circle. And it is all about empowerment. It's about empowering your people to be able to do this. So when I threw my guitar against the wall, I didn't need to ask permission from my manager, say, hey, will you get in touch with the record label and see if it's okay for me to jump into the crowd? (laughs) I just fucking did it because I'm a rock star. Okay. And that's the point of having rock star employees, people that know the outcome they're trying to achieve and then being empowered to do so. I dived into the crowd because at that time, I thought that is the the thing that's going to put this right. Rather than me scuttling off into the corner, looking at my broken guitar, ruining the whole, putting a big dampener on the whole gig for everybody, I thought I'm going to turn this into something even better. The weird thing about this is our brains are strange, man. If you ask anybody what is the best customer experience they ever had, nine times out of 10, they will tell you of an experience that happened after a company has fucked up. So they'll say, there was this one time where my package didn't come in time. So what the guy did is he actually drove to my work 
and delivered it there, which is weird. So a lot of times people's most memorable customer experiences that have been delivered in a good way actually happen after something has gone wrong. When realistically, the best customer experience I ever had and is consistently is when I order from Amazon, I do one click and it turns up at my door. That is the best customer experience in the world for me. But when we get asked about our most memorable or the best customer experience, we tend to find the negative experience and then the positive one that was delivered afterwards. What's interesting about what you're saying is it's a mismatch of expectations. So the Amazon experience, the very first time you had that one-click purchase experience and it delivered same day for you, it was mind-blowing. It was it was complete magic. Whereas now it's just an expectation that, you know, you click, your card's charged automatically and the thing turns up the same day or the next day, depending on when you do it. So, that's become normal. So, it's not exciting or anything particularly unique anymore. Whereas the mismatch differential between when a companies screw something up and then the extra length that they go to to fix that is you're going from such like a on the scale of one to ten you know you're close to a zero one or a two when there's a big problem that's happened you know you you fucked up my holiday and then somebody did something crazy to resolve that you go from a one to a nine or a ten out of ten that feels like an amazing turnaround and so i think that's why we think those are the best experiences not because they're an eight or nine out of ten on the scale but because they've gone from a one or a two. It kind of goes to the peak and end rule, doesn't it? That remembering the the peaks of an experience in the end. But if we look at the peaks, if you're down at a one or a two and somebody can bring it even up to a six, that's a massive climb. And you remember that more than if it was consistently a seven. Yeah, that's such a good point. But the weird thing about it is I have heard some people that actually advocate building in things into experiences to go wrong on purpose to give you that's fucking dumb don't don't do that those people are idiots man don't that's stupid do not do that a lot of people say look let's purposely mess up to show how good we are at putting things right but nah that is not good in my book the one thing that you mentioned which is a massive point and we can't let go by is about expectations and expectation management which is a massively overlooked part of customer experience we need to understand that our expectations as customers are growing and evolving and advancing every single day with every single company we interact with they're not industry specific anymore so if i get a really good experience from amazon i wonder why i can't get a really good experience from the airline i'm not there going oh well yeah but one's an airline and one's out I'm a customer. The the only language I speak is experience. And the point is, there are so many companies out there that have got strategies around expectations. And they say, and you will have heard this, you, you have to exceed customer expectations every single time. That's fucking dumb, right? Because if you exceed an expectation, it becomes the expectation. Then what have you got to do? Well, you've got to exceed it again. And you're just chasing your tail. And then there's no way if you've got different branches to know what level of expectation you've got to fulfill. You deliver inconsistent experiences. In this day and age, to find a company that says, this is what we're going to do and then does it, that's like mind-blowing. The other thing that's kind of interesting about that is our expectations are changing, not just based on what our interactions with a particular brand are, but based on our interactions with every other brand in the world. And so, I can have one-click purchase with Amazon. I can order an Uber with my phone and have it turn up to where I am standing. It comes to me within five minutes. 
you know, Netflix is amazing with the way it recommends things. Now, those are my baselines for when I go and deal with my telco or my insurance company or pay my car registration or a government department, you know, lodging my tax return. And I go, why does this suck so much? If these guys can figure it out, you know, my expectation is now set. And so, that's a big challenge for, I think, a lot of brands, a lot of companies, because particularly technology companies are pushing forward experiences that are really difficult to match. So, I want to talk about how organizational structure is maybe hurting the customer and what we're doing wrong there. What are your thoughts? So, this might be a little uncomfortable for some people. And I I do understand that. There's a guy called Adam Smith. And um, if anybody from the UK is listening, if you look on the back of your uh, £20 notes, there's a little picture of him there. And he was a social economist and he went uh, into a pin factory in Scotland and he was looking at their process and looking at how they produced pins. And their output was shitty, man. It was really bad. And it was largely dependent on who was in on any given day. So if somebody was in with who was a really good pin maker, they'd make a shit ton of pins. If there was somebody in that was really shitty, they would not make very many at all. So he said, wouldn't it be a really neat idea if we took the process of making a pin and we chopped it up into little stages, and we just trained up people to do that part of the pin making really, really well. And that was the division of labor. And he wrote about it in a book called Wealth of Nations. Now, this was a massive departure from the traditional way of of manufacturing, where you had like a master craftsman that if they were going to make a chair, they'd find the perfect tree, they'd chop it down themselves, they'd drag it back to their workshop, they'd play in it, they'd do all the other things, they'd sell it themselves, they'd do the service themselves. It was one person that used to do this. Whereas this was a massive departure from that. It was a case of your job is to sharpen pins Don't ask any questions about anything else. You don't need to know about that stuff. All you need to know is how to sharpen pins the best way possible and the quickest way possible. So that's what happened. That was the division of labor. And then, of course, the subdivision of labor. And what happened from that is it's split into basically departments. So you had the, the preparation department, the production department, the packaging department. And above all of that, the guy at the top was the chief pin maker, the dude that knew the most about making pins If you think about that, you can very easily picture that pyramid, that triangle that all of our organizations are organized into. So this triangle where there's a guy at the top who knows the most about everything, supposedly, all the way down to the people at the bottom, the the front line, as we call them, which in itself is a stupid term because we're not fighting a war with customers. So, so true. I never thought about that. We we say front line all the time and it's like, oh, that, that is such a bad term. It is. Yeah. So we've got this pyramid that has really been adopted from a pin factory. The Wealth of Nations was published in 1776. Now, I'm no mathematician, but that's what, like, it's it's over 250 years ago, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So we are still organized like a pin factory. Everything in this world looks like a pin factory, but we've never questioned this. We've never said, hang on a second, that was created for a different age, for a different thing. Should we be organizing like this, or is there maybe a different way? Now, the big part of this is it causes chaos because we're all in different departments. And it's kind of like that we've turned our organizations into Rubik's Cubes. And I'll explain that. Imagine every department has a different color. You've got the red department, the blue department, the yellow department, the whatever other colors are on a Rubik's Cube department. And each department is being told, okay, red department. The win for you is to get as many red tiles on one side as possible. The yellow department is being told the same, but with yellow tiles. So everybody's working away to try and get as many red tiles or yellow tiles or whatever their color is on the same side as possible. But as the red team's working, what are they doing to the yellow team? Yeah, they're messing it up. Yeah, they're fucking up all their work. We do that every day. Our departments are basically battling against each other. 
for our own department supremacy. Whereas if we took a step back and said, guys, you're all going to work together to complete a Rubik's Cube, you still might not get to that place, but you're going to be in a much better place than working against each other. The triangle analogy from Adam Smith's Pin Factory is really our corporate hierarchy. You know, it's the CEO at the top and middle management, and then you've got your frontline, which we agreed is a bad term, customer-facing staff at the bottom. And so, with that triangle, you maybe have kind of slices running through it, which are your departments. So, you've got marketing, you've got accounting, you've got HR, you've got logistics, whatever. And so, in between those, they're fighting for ownership of the customer, they're fighting for budgets against each other, they're fighting processes and procedures. So, that's kind of the baseline that you're setting. And I think we've all worked in an organization that has been like that. I think many are like that and some are worse than others, right? But that's a good kind of baseline about how most organizations will function. The thing is, it causes its own problems because people can look at this organogram, that's its fancy name, and say, well, look look at where I am in the pyramid. The customer's not my job. Don't talk to me about the customer. The cust- that's their job. That's those guys. That's the front line. That's their job. The customer's their job. The crazy thing is, we send a very direct message to people in our organization that, of course, the higher you climb up the pyramid, the better you are, the more you get paid, the more influence you have. Basically, the further you get away from the customer, the better you are. We take our most precious resource, our customer, and we hand it over to the least skilled, the least trained, the least invested in, and the least valued members of our organization. And then we wonder why things consistently go wrong. I think we need to be taking a complete different route. But the point is, the mind-blowing thing about this is the pyramid isn't real. This triangle isn't real. We, we talk about it as if it is. We talk about silo walls as if they're a real thing. We talk about chains of command as if they're a real thing. We talk about climbing the corporate ladder as if it's a real thing. But it's not a real thing. It's just a drawing on a piece of paper. But we think it is real. If you look at any of the massive headquarters in the world, they use that as their blueprint. The CEO sits at the top, the frontliner at the bottom. That is their blueprint for how they build things and segregate people. But it isn't real. It's just a drawing on a piece of paper. It's a collective abstract illusion. If there's a table and we both stop thinking about the table, the table still exists. But if we stop thinking about the pyramid, it doesn't exist anymore. The organogram doesn't exist anymore. It's just a drawing. And that drawing can be different. And the way I think it should be done is basically in concentric circles. And there's an analogy I use around that, which I think highlights this perfectly. It's going to be difficult for me to talk about because of England's disastrous defeat in the World Cup, but it's it's about football. Basically, a couple of questions you need to ask before you can do this. So number one, who is the customer? Now, you might think that's an easy question, but for a lot of companies, that is very, very difficult. Sometimes companies think the referee is the customer, the regulator. Sometimes people think that the board members are the customer. But if in in the football sense, or soccer, if you are listening from America, to give it its incorrect name, we we can pretty much agree that the fans are the customer. Okay? So we say, okay, the fans are the customer. What next? We then need to understand what their successful outcome is. So I'll ask you this. When a fan comes to watch a football game, what is their successful outcome? They want their team to win. They want to have a good time. they They want to enjoy it, right? Yeah. So see the team win is probably the ultimate overarching success that they could achieve. See the team win. So then you've got to ask yourself the question, what collection of people as a manager do I need to put together who are best suited to delivering that outcome? You would never just put 11 goalkeepers on the field. You'd never just put 11 strikers on the field. You'd never just put 11 defenders on the field. What a manager does is he puts people together with different skills and different core competencies who are best suited to delivering that particular outcome. We don't do that in business. 
we segregate people by their skills, their skill sets. We don't put people together based on how capable they are of working together to deliver a successful outcome. So I think we should be putting things together, putting our teams together, experienced teams like a football team. And it's the understanding that the players are the people that interact with the fans and everyone else, the manager, the coach, the club doctor, the physiotherapist, the groundskeeper, they're all in an outer circle. They're all support roles, but they understand the groundskeeper knows that he's making the grass as good as possible to give the team the best chance of winning the game, delivering that successful outcome. Everybody in a football team understands that what they're doing on a day-to-day basis has that alignment towards the delivery of that successful outcome, which is something that we don't have in organizations. But crazy things start to happen when you organize people in this way. Like, for example, you would never get a striker seeing another striker about to score on the opposite team, run over to them and say, excuse me, could you just wait there a little moment? You need to be tackled. I'm just trained uh, to take shots. I need to transfer you to a defender who's better capable of it. They'd at least try. They'd at least try and make the tackle because they understand that their success together of a team isn't about the individual things they're doing. It's not about the passes. It's not about the running. It's not about the shots. It's about winning the game. And that comes down to the measurements we use as well. If you understand that the successful outcome for the customer is to win the game, you should measure the delivery of that. You shouldn't be targeting people for how many passes they're making because that's incongruent to the delivery of that success. If you targeted midfielders for how many passes they make, they'd stand in a circle just passing to each other. That's not congruent to the delivery of success. If you targeted the defenders on how many tackles they made, they'd pass to the opposition strikers to give them a better chance of making tackles. It's not congruent to the delivery of that success. But that is what we do every single day in our organizations. We set up our measures and our metrics for the success of our department We very rarely set up our measures and metrics for the success of the customer. And it's a lot of the time individual success. So I've taken X amount of phone calls today or I've processed X amount of things. It's the understanding that if you want to be truly customer-centric, you need to take this different view. You need to start targeting people for the delivery of customer success, measuring the delivery of customer success, and putting teams together with different skills and different core competencies who are best suited to delivering that customer success not segregating people by their skill set, but pulling people together who are best suited to deliver that success. James, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a little bit confronting at points. It's been hilarious at others. And throughout, it's been completely eye-opening and, uh, and revolutionary. So thanks for sharing your thinking. You're welcome, man. No problem. Thanks for having me. So that is the end of part two with James Dodkins. Michael, welcome to the debrief section. Thank you very much. This is where we sum up the key takeaways from the interview. And I might kick us off today. I really loved where James talked about his four-step complaint handling process and how really using that enables you to be proactive in dealing with issues. So just to reiterate, the four steps of the process are one, identify, two, monitor, three, communicate and for compensate. And I guess the key message was don't handle complaints. Um, You actually want to prevent the complaint from coming in by fixing the experience in the experience. And I thought that was just a really nice methodology to think about because it means that we're thinking more about the customer's outcome. 
Yeah, so the one that really stood out for me was when he said, we set up our measures and metrics often for the success of departments, but we don't have these measures and metrics for the success of the customer. Yeah. I thought this was really good. Now, the reality is in organizations, everyone does need to have their own metrics for their job. But the meta point here of us all being focused on what is the success of the customer and us all being engaged with that and ideally having a company scoreboard that we look at to see are our customers successful with us is really critical. And then I think what's important is that the metrics and the measures that happen at a department level or a person level, there should be an easy to understand line and connection between what we're doing to the overall company metrics, which is ultimately about the success of the customer. Takeaway number three for me was actually a little bit of a meta point. Um, I don't know that it was actually anything that James specifically said, but it was all about the way that he said it. Right. I really enjoyed this discussion with James because he gave a lot of really interesting examples. He used storytelling. Yes, a lot of analogies, yeah. Yeah. And so the, the meta point here is, you know, when we're trying to sell customer experience initiatives internally to, you know, other departments, we should be using stories to do that because you want to get people's emotional investment. Yeah, and I think the really good thing about that, so I I absolutely love it. Like stories analogies are great. It's what people remember. The key thing for me is using these analogies also depersonalizes any criticisms. So if you're saying, hey, your department like isn't helping out by this, then the person is not going to start getting personally offended and start defending. If you use like, for example, when he used a soccer analogy and he was like, oh, like this person needs to be doing this or like we need this help here. It's a very easy way for someone to objectively go, oh, actually, yeah, do you know what? Like it is crazy that our defenders are saying, oh, we need to, (laughs) you know, kick X amount of balls or whatever it may be. And so I thought that was a really, really good way of framing it as well in terms of getting other people on board internally. And uh, Mike, what was your last takeaway? The last one, just while we're talking about storytelling and the way to frame things, it's a small little takeaway, but it's actually something that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently, actually. And that's actually um, removing ward-like analogies from our business vernacular and how we talked about not using the word frontline, but we should be talking about, you know, our customer teams. Yeah. You know, we're not in battle with our customers, right? So, having a beachhead and boots on the ground and all these types of, you know, words that we say in business they really shouldn't have a place unless you're talking about maybe against your competitor. (laughs) Um, But certainly with regards to your customer, uh, we really, really should be striving to remove warlike analogy. It's not helpful. And I find sporting analogies and team and sporting analogies a lot better. And actually, I've actually even started reading a lot of sporting leadership books recently because there's just so many great analogies there. So let's sum up the four takeaways The first one was be proactive when dealing with issues and complaints. And a great way to do that is with the four-step process. Yeah, the second one was ensuring that your metrics are aligned to the success of the customer. The third was use storytelling when selling initiatives internally. And the last one was let's try to remove our war-like wording around initiatives around the customer. If you'd like to connect with Michael or myself, we love to hear from the customer experience leaders fans. Please reach out to us on LinkedIn. I am Adam Jaffrey. Yeah, and I'm Michael Momsen, M-O-M-S-E-N. We really enjoy having the community on board. And if anything comes to mind or you listen to an episode and you've got uh, some feedback or some ideas, we absolutely love having chats. So, just send us a direct message and we will read and reply to everyone. Thanks so much. We'll speak to you next time. See ya. Thanks for listening. 
Customer Experience Leaders is produced by Rated, the market leader in on-the-spot customer feedback. Rated has a range of ways for businesses to collect feedback in the moment of a transaction taking place rather than through mystery shoppers or email surveys later on. So the data is much more valuable and relevant. To find out more or speak to someone in the team, head to rateitapp.com. That's R-A-T-E-I-T-A-P-P.com. This show is produced in partnership with Wavelength Creative. This episode was produced by me and Christopher Lawson, who also edited and mixed the episode. Our music is by Icolix, Peter Cooley, and The Shrugs. I'm Adam Jaffrey. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you next time.